Well, hello, friends. Great to be with you for this last lesson on the Gospel of Matthew. We have been going through the book of Matthew over the last several weeks here on my Facebook Live page. And uh, today is the last of those lessons. We will be in Matthew chapter 28. And uh, it's the great story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm excited about this lesson. I'm looking forward to this lesson. I think this is this is one of those lessons that we really need to hear all the time. And I think we really need to hear it, especially um, right now. And so I'm glad that you're joining us. Looks like my friend Debbie Spears is here. Welcome, welcome. And the Mosleys, great to see you, Eric and Cindy. So glad to have y'all. And I know there will be some others that will join in. Some of you I'll, I'll be able to see and may have a chance to say something about. Probably most, that won't be the case. Uh, but it is wonderful to be with you. A little commercial as we begin, and hopefully I'll remember at the end as well. And that is that starting next week, we will continue in our uh, uh, classes on uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 4 p.m. And what we will be studying will be, since Matthew only has 28 chapters and we won't start with chapter 29, the Holy Spirit decided we didn't need that. So uh, we'll begin in Acts, in Acts chapter 1, and that will be our study through the summer on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Hopefully we'll be able to not feel so rushed uh, today because we covered so much on Tuesday. Um, I will be able to just be in Matthew 28 and talk about the resurrection, and so that'll be good. Uh, but in uh, this summer, as we do Acts on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 4 p.m. Central Daylight Time on my Facebook page, we'll be able to cover one chapter most of the time, one chapter per study. And that'll be good, and that'll be, that'll be great. Uh, great to see Larry and Lynn uh, Murphy here, wonderful family here in Tyler, and our friend Vicki Arnold. Uh, Vicki, it's so great to see you. Hopefully this is Church Vicki that's watching, uh, and that's a little inside joke, but we'll leave that one there. Uh, it's great to have everyone today. It's wonderful that uh, you'll be with me today as we consider Matthew 28 and the importance uh, and blessing and uh, uh, confirmation and credibility of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think this is a, a very, very hard time. It's been a hard time uh, for the last few months because of the novel coronavirus that has ravaged the world, including our own country and our own communities. And we're thankful that God is blessing us and I believe helping us to begin to work through that and come through that. And we're grateful and we pray that, uh, that his guiding hand and his uh, grace and mercy will continue as we go through this process of basically reopening our, our communities and our country. Um, but there's also over the last uh, several weeks a continued reminder, it seems, of the uh, great uh, difficulties that we have in so many other areas uh, in our world and specifically in our nation and in our communities. Uh, the recent uh, events that remind us that we are still a, um, a country that struggles uh, with uh, racial discrimination and our, our hearts go out to all of those who have been victimized because of that, all of those who are trying to, to help. And so I, I know that your heart breaks over that and we pray to God over that and we seek to help uh, however we can in ways uh, that are positive, ways that are Christ-like, uh, ways that, that will hopefully make a difference, even if it's just in some small way. 
And so I, I know you join me in prayer for our communities and for our nation during this very uh, troubling time, and especially for those uh, who are particularly suffering uh, because of, of these things. Um, so with that in mind, we, uh, we recognize that while uh, the, the threats are real, while the dangers are real, and the difficulties are great, uh, and the challenges are immense, we face all of those and acknowledge all of those, but we do so with hope. First Thessalonians 4 says that we mourn when we lose loved ones, but not like those who mourn who have no hope. Uh, we have hope, and what we're talking about today in Matthew 28 is why we have hope. We have hope because the tomb is empty. We have hope because of the one who died on the cross and was buried in that tomb and then was raised with power, being declared the Son of God, uh, Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's the story that we get to talk about today. The last lesson on Tuesday was very hard. If you haven't um, if you haven't, if you weren't, uh, haven't heard that yet, haven't been able to watch that yet, uh, then it's on my Facebook page. It's on our West Irwin Church of Christ page, and will be on our website. But it's from Matthew 26 and 27, and the um, the difficult reading of the betrayal of Jesus, the uh, the heartfelt prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the and the answer from his father, uh, no, uh, God heard his son's prayer. And his son prayed in all righteousness and sincerity, and yet uh, God's answer was no. Uh, and so Jesus was betrayed. All of the disciples fled, just like he warned them. Uh, Peter denied him three times, just like he warned him that he would. Uh, Jesus was arrested, uh, mock trial before the Jewish leaders, pronounced guilty, taken to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, uh, because the Jews didn't want him just to die, they wanted him to be crucified. And only the Romans could do that. And so Pilate, uh, to save his own uh, place of power, uh, pronounced him guilty even though he knew he wasn't, and, uh, and condemned him to death by crucifixion. And Jesus was buried by two members of the Jewish ruling council, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, both leaders of the Jews, uh, and both men, apparently, who did not go along with the decision to condemn him. Uh, Nicodemus, we see charted through the book of John uh, in John 3, and then later the end of John 7, and then finally um, in John 19, as uh, he joins his fellow Sanhedrin member, Joseph, uh, to take the body of Jesus down, becoming ceremonially unclean themselves, but more than that, becoming targeted by their fellow Jewish leaders because now when you have someone just like later with Saul of Tarsus when you have someone who has been against this cause and then all of a sudden is very publicly uh, in favor of it and promoting it uh, like Nicodemus and Joseph did then they become targets and so they risked their lives uh, to do that but they took the body down they took it to uh, Joseph's own tomb which was nearby uh, a very quick uh, burial uh, of of the body of Christ, and then um, and then beginning their uh, uh, observance of uh, the Sabbath weekend, um, and so it was very a very difficult uh, very difficult lesson, uh, and that's where we left it with Jesus in the tomb, but in Matthew chapter twenty eight, 
um, uh, the story changes. And so let's, let's read the first part of Matthew 28, uh, the first 15 verses. Uh, and then we're going to make some comments uh, before we read the concluding part, which Jesus addresses to us. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Fainted dead away, I gotta say, I probably would have been right there with him. Verse 5, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. And it's interesting to me that every time we see Jesus and his appearances and the angel in this case... That's the first thing they say, do not be afraid. And it's because we are terrified about this. Terrified. And so were they. The angel said to the women, Matthew 28, verse 5, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him now I have told you. It's just amazing that they're surprised by this as many times as Jesus told them it would happen. But the angels, they are, they're merciful, they're gracious, they're excited, just as much of excited as they were at his birth now at his resurrection uh, and they're sharing that excitement with these women. Verse 8, So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Isn't that us? Afraid yet filled with joy? Uh, terrified of what we see and what we know and what we've been, and yet filled with joy because of the good news, the gospel. Suddenly, verse 9, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. We're going to come back and share a little bit more about all this story as we kind of relate it to uh, Mark and Luke and John's uh, uh, stories of the resurrection. Matthew 28, verse 11, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble because they knew that they would be killed. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. The horror and devastation and despondency of the, the crucifixion has now given way to the resurrection. Uh, that horrible day when Jesus was crucified and then the, the wait and then the wait before the resurrection. And that's how our lives are as well. We know that the promise of Jesus' return is real, and we trust in that, and we believe in that, but it hasn't been fulfilled yet. And just as Peter says in 2 Peter 3, there are people who are in our generation, just like they were already in Peter's generation, 30 years after these events happened, who were saying, hey, I thought you said he was coming back. Where is he? Where is he? He must not be going to do it. 
Well, Peter said, you know, this is a very real promise and there are always gonna be doubters, there are always gonna be scoffers, um, but we believe, we believe, and we know that this is going to happen. We don't know when, we don't know when, and that question is never answered in scripture. Um, and sometimes we get lost in that, and I've shared some things about that in the past, especially over the last uh, couple of chapters before these events uh, in, in Matthew 24 and 25. Those were, um, those, those were lessons you can go back and look at, because if you're asking the when question, if you're seeing that this is the last days, well, it is. It's been that way for 2,000 years. Paul wrote Timothy and said, it's the last days. Uh, Peter talks about people who were saying, this isn't going to happen. You, we don't believe you. Um, and, and yet, Jesus himself said, look, the when is not the right question. The right question is, how should I be living right now? The right question is, what should I be doing right now, knowing that you will come, knowing that you will return? Uh, well, we're living in that in-between time, just like they did on that Saturday. We do today, uh, having seen the evidence of the, of the crucifixion, having seen the evidence of the resurrection and waiting for the promise of his return to be fulfilled. Uh, that's where we are uh, right now. Um, and, and so we, we look to those things and we recognize that God is calling us to live a certain way. If he comes today, that would be great. If he comes before the end of this lesson, that would be so wonderful. But if he waits another 2,000 years, there's nothing saying that he won't. But Bill, it's such a difficult time right now. You even said at the beginning of the lesson how, how horrible things are right now. And yeah, it is difficult. And yes, some things are horrible. But tell me a generation in the last 2,000 years where that wasn't the case. And if you look throughout history, I think what you'll find are generations and times that were far, far worse than now. Far, far worse than now. And yet, Jesus didn't come. All he did was maintain his presence through his disciples, just as he is doing now and just as he will do now and will continue to do until he does return. That day will come, and Peter says that in 2 Peter 3. A day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day, so don't worry about the wind. Don't worry about how long it's been. And then he says, but the day of the Lord will come. It will come, and we know that that is true. Uh, this great event, this great uh, passage that speaks about all of the uh, incidences of the resurrection uh, is contained in all four Gospels. All four Gospels tell the story of his crucifixion. All four tell the story of his resurrection. Each of them adds uh, details that some of the others uh, do not. And so as we see this passage and as we think about all of these things, it's amazing that Jesus uh, turns to these women uh, to disclose his resurrection. Jesus always valued uh, women. Uh, they were a big part of his ministry. They were at, there at very important times. And, and we understand that and we get that. And like Jesus, we too uh, should uh, hold women in the highest place, uh, place of honor and respect. Uh, Jesus reveals himself to them and and he reveals ultimately himself to all of the other disciples um, as well. And, and so about these other accounts, uh, Mark's account is in Mark 16. And uh, for the first eight or so verses, uh, we, the manuscript evidence is very reliable. For the rest of the passage, it's questionable. 
And I'll let you kind of chase that down and decide uh, whether you think that was a part of Mark's original gospel or whether it wasn't. It doesn't change anything because the other three gospel writers share all of those same things. And so there's nothing in Mark uh, at the end of that uh, chapter um, that that would contradict the things that we find in the others. Uh, the stories are the same. But Mark does add one little detail in Mark chapter 16. Uh, when the angel tells the women, go and tell his disciples, Mark adds, and Peter. And Peter. Uh, there's a, a, a Christian uh, message uh, that a, a comedian slash uh, minister uh, has out uh, where he is, is Peter. And he is talking about the times when uh, he hears about this story as Peter. And when those two words hit him finally, go and tell his disciples and Peter, according to Mark 16. Uh, that I've risen and that I want to meet with you, then Peter is beginning to be affirmed after his terrible, horrible denials. Um, and his penitence is seen as he goes out and weeps bitterly. But, but here, Jesus is already opening that door. Um, go and tell his disciples and Peter that I want to see them and that I'll meet with them in Galilee. Luke 24 uh, is uh, Luke's version of all of these things. And he gives that, that wonderful story, one of my favorite Bible stories uh, of the two individuals on the road to Emmaus, a town not very far from uh, where all of this was taking place in Jerusalem. Uh, not, not even a day's walk, but perhaps uh, half a day's walk or maybe a little less um, nearby. And that great story in Luke 24, one of the two uh, disciples is mentioned, but we don't recognize his name and we don't find it really anywhere else unless he might be associated with someone else. And the other one is unnamed. So we really don't know who those two guys are, but, um, but they find Jesus or Jesus finds them. And they're walking on the way to Emmaus from Jerusalem and Jesus joins them and he says, what's up? And they say, what do you mean, what's up? Don't you know? Uh, did you just get off the boat, man? Come on, everybody's talking about what happened with Jesus and his crucifixion and we thought he was the Messiah and then uh, some of our, our fellow disciples are saying that the tomb is empty and he's been raised and we just don't get that. And that's when, according to Luke 24, Jesus tells them the story and he traces it back. And oh, how I would love to have heard Jesus telling this story himself, telling his story as he charts it through the Old Testament and through the prophets. And we know that he would look at places like Isaiah 53 and other places that speak about what the Messiah would be and, um, and how he would be a servant and how he would take the punishment that we deserved upon himself. And Jesus does that. And then they finally reach their destination. They invite him to stay and he does, and they invite him to eat and, and he does. And, but as has been said, I think by William Williman, this guest becomes the host at that dinner and he shares with them and he breaks the bread. And that's when their eyes are opened and they recognize that it's Jesus and he is immediately swept away. But they tell each other, did not our hearts burn within us as he told the story, his story. And they run back and tell uh, the others what they have seen. If I could climb into the DeLorean with Doc and Marty and go back to somewhere in time, um, this might be where I would wanna go 
and just walk with them and listen to Jesus tell the story. What a great moment that must have been. And then, of course, John chapters 20 and 21 tell about the resurrection as well. John devotes two whole chapters to it. He spends a whole lot longer than the others on that, uh, that time of the Last Supper and on the, this, uh, the, these last few days of Jesus' life and the last hours of his life. But then he also spends a lot more time in the resurrection, although I'm not sure how the verses pan out. But John gives two whole chapters, chapters 20 and 21, and he does share some things that the others don't. John, probably being the last of the Gospels written, probably very much aware of what the others had already said. Uh, but after telling the story of the resurrection, he reminds us, he tells us of a few details that they didn't share. Uh, one of my favorite stories is the little race that goes on between Peter and and uh, John, they run. When they hear the women that Jesus has been raised, they run to the tomb. And John, apparently much younger, uh, gets there before Peter does. And when John gets there, he just kind of sheepishly looks around and doesn't go in, uh, even though he could have because the stone had been rolled away. The guards by this time had already long left. But he waits there. Of course, Peter, when he gets there, he just jumbles right back in, right in the tomb. And then John goes in as well. And what's interesting is the way John describes that. Again, his firsthand account in John 20 and 21. And he says, you know, what I saw there was amazing. What I didn't see was the body of Christ, but I saw everything else. And as he describes it, it's like the, the linens that were around his body just sunk down when his body was resurrected. And the, the linens that were at his head uh, there, untouched, um, and yet, Jesus' body was nowhere to be seen because it just wasn't there. It had been raised. It had been taken away. And John says, I saw and I believed. Um, what an incredible moment in, in statement uh, that that is. John also tells us about the conversation that Jesus had specifically with Mary and how she wanted to hold on to him. But Jesus said, no, 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 I'm I've got work to do still. I, I will be ascending to the Father and I've got some things to do before then. And that very special uh, moment, I think, that Jesus shared uh, with Mary Magdalene. Um, and then the story of Thomas and Jesus. Thomas doubting Thomas, as we call him, well-deserved, I might add. Um, Thomas, not with the other 10 apostles. Remember, there's only 11 now. Judas Iscariot had, had hanged himself. Uh, rather than repented the way Peter and the others did. Ultimately, he'll be replaced in Acts 1 by Matthias during the work of the Holy Spirit, but not yet. And so the 10 apostles are there when Jesus appears to them, first of all, and not Thomas. And I'm not sure why. Um, scripture doesn't tell us. There's a lot of those fun little details that we would like to know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. But for some reason or another, Thomas wasn't with them. But he's with them now. And Jesus appears again, John tells us in John chapter 20. But before that, Thomas had told him when they said, hey, we've seen the Lord, we've seen the Lord. He said, look, been there, done that. I, I gave my everything to him. And then I saw him die on a cross as a criminal. No angels coming to save him. Um, no no God coming down from the cross. Um, nothing, only death. And he said, I tell you, this time, unless I can take my fingers and put them in the holes that the nails made in his hands, unless I can take my hand and thrust it into his side 
where that Roman spear went through to make sure he was dead, I'm not going to believe again. And then Jesus appears to all of them, including Thomas. And no, he doesn't strike him dead with a lightning bolt. Just like Jesus had done with that man whose son was possessed by a demon in Mark 9. And he comes to Jesus and he says, I've tried to get your followers and disciples to help and they can't do anything. If you can help, please do something. And Jesus says, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. And, and the man says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. That's where we are a lot of the times. Uh, we're sincere, we're genuine, we want to believe. We do believe, but we also have doubts at times and struggles. And when we see things like what's going on in our world today, we wonder, how can you let this go on, God? Just like Habakkuk, the prophet of old, um, in uh, around 600 uh, BC did. And yet God also um, gives us time and allows us the opportunity to, to deepen our faith. And he does that with Thomas in John 20. And he comes up to Thomas not to reprimand him, uh, not to uh, take his life and condemn him, but he says, look, Thomas, here's my hands. Put your finger through if you want. Here's my side. Stick your hand in there if you want. Stop doubting and believe. And that's what Jesus does with us. And to Thomas's credit, he's called Doubting Thomas, but this actually is, I believe, his finest hour. Because what he does is he makes a great confession of faith as he says, my Lord and my God. And in the original, we see the, the Lord of me, the God of me. You are my Lord. You are my God, Jesus. Um, a great statement of confession of faith. Jesus, of course, goes on to say, well, Thomas, you're blessed. You're blessed because of what you've seen. Blessed are the ones who haven't seen and yet believe. And that's us. Because of these words in this Bible, we hear and we believe. It's a credible faith, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But it is faith nonetheless. We live by faith, not by sight. When he returns, it will be sight. But for now, it's faith by faith. And that means there are times when we struggle. There are times when we question. There are times when we doubt. Um, and that's okay. Just don't get lost there. And don't try to hide there. Be willing to pray and to tell God that's how you're feeling. He already knows. So why not come clean with him about it and ask for his help? Perhaps uh, one or two trusted people that are people of faith that can help you through that time of doubt and question and difficulty. Uh, don't try to handle that on your own. We can't. That's why God gave us the church. That's why God puts people in our lives that can help us navigate those troubled, stormy seas. I hope, I hope and pray that you'll do that. When those times come, Jesus was there to help Thomas along. He'll be there to help us along as well. But it's not just Thomas that Jesus spends a special moment with. It's also Peter. And that great story in John 21 when Jesus, I see him putting his arm around Peter and then perhaps walking along a path or by the shore or somewhere with John trailing closely behind, trying to listen in on everything that's said. And Jesus tasks, asks Peter, Simon, do you love me? And he uses that great word agape, that word that says I love you with uh, a, a complete self-sacrificing love. 
And Peter can't bring himself to do that this time. The old Peter would have immediately responded, of course I love you, I'll go to my death for you, which he ultimately would. But now he's got a great dose of humility and he says, Lord, you know that I love you. But he uses that little bit lesser term that I have great brotherly affection for you. And Jesus does the same thing again. And Peter's response is the same. And then finally, the third time, Jesus asks him, do you love me, Simon? And yet he comes down this time to Peter's turn. And Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. And I think he's heartbroken that, that Jesus had asked him three times. And he's heartbroken at the terms that were used. But Jesus tells him, just as he did in Luke chapter 22, when Jesus is warning him at the Last Supper and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you. And when you return, I want you to strengthen your brothers. And that's what he's telling him now on the other side of Peter's denials, on the other side of that look that Luke tells us Jesus and Peter shared after that rooster crowed on the other side of the resurrection. Jesus is telling Peter, Peter, you are still my guy. You're still my man. You're still my disciple. And Jesus does the same with us today. He comes to us when we're at our lowest and he says, I'm gonna lead you through this. And when, when, we've, when we've gotten through this, I want you to strengthen your brothers and sisters because they need you to, because I want you to. He gives us forgiveness. He gives us salvation, but then he also gives us mission and purpose. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Um, what a great scene in John 20 and 21. But I want us to look for just a moment at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's that great resurrection chapter. And it tells us about how important this moment is that Matthew has described in Matthew chapter 28. Um, in, Ma in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. Very early, just decades after these events, it is already the central core message, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel that you heard. And then he tells us what this is. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, and he received it from Jesus Christ. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Simon Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Or died. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, the brother of Jesus, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Why these appearances? Why is that such a central part of this message? Because it adds credibility to the gospel that we have come to believe in, that we have placed our trust in, that we have given our lives to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That is the gospel. There is a response of faith to believe in, in what we have heard, this gospel, to repent of our sins. That means to, to change your life, to change the path you're on. We won't be sinless after that, but we will be on a different path, and it's a path that leads to God. 
that seeks to be worthy, to do right, to live according to Christ's commandments. Uh, we believe and we repent. We confess that faith so that others will know this is something that we truly believe from our hearts. And, and we are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Just as that great verse in Acts chapter 2, verse 38 tells us that that was the first message that was told to those who asked that very question, what must we do on hearing the gospel that Jesus died and was buried and has been raised from the dead. Uh, and we get to go through that story throughout this summer as we look at the book of Acts. Paul says that is the gospel. And, and that gospel is, is credible. Why? Because there are people who saw him. There are people who saw him dead. There are people who saw him very much alive after that. And he recounts many of those. The disciples, the, the, uh, the, the apostles that Jesus had called, um, 500 at a time. And, and to, to have one or two people to say, well, this is what happened or that's what happened, but to appear to a big, large group like that, it's, it's easily questioned and, and it's easily contradicted, and yet they could not. Um, and then continuing on, as he says, he appeared to James who is James, the Lord's brother, not James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were two of the apostles that he's already mentioned, but James, the half-brother of the Lord, one of those who had said, we don't believe in you, we don't believe in you, and yet this man, James, becomes a leader of the church in Jerusalem as we see him take the lead in Acts 15, as we see in other instances, Paul himself saying, I went to talk to James because he's one of one of the great leaders of, of the church. Um, and he writes one of the New Testament letters, the letter of James, a very powerful book that tells us to not just believe, but to have an active faith. It's that James. And what changed him? What made the difference between this man who says, hey, I grew up knowing you, Jesus, all my life. You're my brother. I, I can't believe that you're the son of God. I, I can't believe that you're the Messiah. What changed him? It's that he saw his brother raised from the dead. He saw the resurrected Jesus, and he was never the same. And so we see James and his brothers and his sisters and his mother there with the earliest disciples in Acts chapter 1, waiting, waiting uh, for that spirit to be given and praying throughout Acts chapter 1. It's that James that Jesus appears to, as Paul recounts in 1 Corinthians 15. And then he says, last of all to me, I didn't deserve it, but on that road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to Saul of Tarsus, and he would become the Apostle Paul, a great missionary, a great leader of the church, a writer of much of the New Testament, um, a man that's so important in the history of God's people. Uh, and then throughout the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the resurrection and how important it is. Later, he would say, look, if there's no resurrection, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then why are we doing this? If, if it's just for this life, well, that's nice, but, but that's no reason. To live the way we're living, to sacrifice the way we're sacrificing, to be persecuted the way we're being persecuted, if there's no resurrection, then forget it. Forget it. That's how important the resurrection is. And Paul says there is a resurrection and Jesus has been raised because the tomb is empty. 
Well, should we believe this and why should we believe this, Bill? I think that's a very legitimate question. Uh, men like Lee Strobel have written in such great ways about the case for Christ, about the case for the resurrection, and I encourage you to read his works, um, uh, to look at Sean McDowell and his father, Josh McDowell, and, and their work, um, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and uh, look at seanmcdowell.com and, and, and talk, uh, find his website. It's either .com or .org, and, and be able to, to chase him down because they they tell us why it's credible to believe. It's still faith. It's still something that we believe because we didn't see it. But it's a credible faith. It's not a faith that's based on nothing. It's a faith that has stood the test of time. And it's a faith that is worthy. It's credible. Why is that, Bill? Well, let's talk about that for just a moment. First of all, it happened in Jerusalem, the central city for the Jews. It happened uh, during the weekend of Pentecost, or, or of Passover rather, when many, many Jews were there from all over the known world. And you can't hide this. In fact, we understand that because those two disciples on the road to Emmaus were surprised that Jesus would act as if he hadn't heard his own story because everybody had heard it. Um, and, and yet when when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was right there in the very town in which he had been killed, right there in the very town in which he had been buried. And yet no one, no one said, let's go to the tomb. Let's end this thing right now. Everybody get together. They call in Geraldo. They have the TV cameras. CNN is there. They're all set. They open up. They, they go to the tomb. They see that the seal of the emperor of Rome is still very much there. No one's touched it. The guards are all there. The extra guards are all there. The stone is still right there. So they get some of the guys to move the stone away. They go into the body. The cameras are flashing. And, and there's the body of Jesus when they go into the tomb. Why didn't they do that? This Christian message would have ended before it ever started. They didn't do that because the body wasn't there. The body wasn't there. Even though it was in the same city, even though it was just three days since he had been killed and placed there. And they immediately began telling the story. We've seen him. We've seen him. He's, he's alive. And for the next almost two months, Jesus appears and, and then finally, the day of Pentecost, which is 50 days after this uh, day of Passover and the, and the Resurrection Sunday, 50 days later, um, it is the time of, uh, of the Pentecost on that Sunday, and, um, and, and the Spirit is given, and now they're speaking boldly out in the community about this, and, and, and still in the city of Jerusalem, less than two months later, and yet no one says, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's go to that tomb. You say he's been raised. Let's, let's, let's see. Nobody does that. Nobody does that. And the church continues there in Jerusalem for quite a while, up until the time uh, that Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr, as Saul of Tarsus is there becoming the point man of the opposition. And Stephen is killed and all but the apostles are forced to leave. Um, they, still, they don't do that. They don't do that. Why not? Why not? Because the tomb was empty. Because people were going around saying, hey, we saw him dead and we have seen him alive. That firsthand eyewitness testimony is what we're talking about. And, and we have their words 
and we have their testimony and their witness. We have what they said they saw recorded for us even still. And even Matthew himself includes in some of the verses we just read in Matthew 28. What are you going to do? If you're a, if you're a Jewish leader, if you're a, a Roman officer, what are you going to do? The guards, they, they didn't do their job. The stone is rolled away. The emperor's seal is broken. Uh, the body of Jesus is gone. And the the soldiers are saying, look, here's what happened. There was this earthquake. There was an angel. I, we were terrified. We fainted dead away because of what we saw. And then when we woke up, Jesus was gone. Just like he said he was going to be. Well, you can't tell that story if you're a Jewish leader. You can't tell that story if you're a Roman officer. So what do you do? Well, they dipped into the treasury again. They paid off the guards and they said, look, just say his disciples came and overpowered you. This Roman guard whose lives would be in danger would be taken if Jesus left their care, if someone broke into that tomb and stole the body away. These, this extra guard, as Matthew has said, uh, that they were to be sure because they knew Jesus had said this could happen and it would happen. And so they said, let's, let's have an extra guard there to make sure that it doesn't. And yet they were overpowered. And so they have this, come up with this story. Oh yeah, those disciples, those scaredy cat disciples who all ran for their lives. Those scaredy cat disciples who betrayed him and denied him and turned away from him. Oh yeah, they're the ones that came and overpowered this extra Roman guard, this squadron of guards, and overpowered them, heavily armed, and stole the body of Jesus away. Right, right. But what else were they going to say? Well, one of the theories that has been offered is that Jesus actually didn't die. He had fainted. It appeared that he was dead. And so he was revived, but you still have the problem. Okay, how does he get out of the tomb? How does he get past the guards? So that's not going to work. But when you read the account of all the beatings and the floggings and the crown of thorns and the humiliation and the nails driven in and the spear, there's no way that he wasn't dead. He was dead. He was dead and he was buried. And then he wasn't. And then he wasn't. What, what are you going to say? The story they gave is impossible. It actually requires more faith, in my opinion, than that God raised him from the dead. But then you look further. You look at the change in his disciples. These apostles that were so scared that they denied him, that they ran away, that they did not... Uh, try to die with him, even though they all said they would. And now they're willing to. Now they're going to be punished. Now they're going to be threatened by the Jewish leaders very early. Uh, in Acts chapters 3 and 4, we read that they, are, uh, that they are threatened. And later, that they are punished. And they the floggings begin of the apostles. Ultimately, they, some are imprisoned in Acts chapter 12, or again, early on. Within years of the beginning of the church, King Herod has James, the brother of John, put to death. And he's about to do the same to Peter, except an angel rescues him. 
It's those men whose lives totally changed. Just like James, the half-brother of the Lord. Just like Jude, the half-brother of the Lord, who also had his doubts and yet wrote one of the books of the New Testament. What changed them? I'll tell you what changed them. They saw Jesus dead. And then they saw him alive. And they remembered. He said, this is exactly what's going to happen. Because he said he was the son of God. All of those appearances, right there in the same city where he had been killed, where he had been buried, perhaps for um, 40 days, Jesus does that. And then uh, 10 days later on the day of Pentecost, the preaching begins. And yet there's no one. No one that says, look, let's put an end to this right now. Let's just go back to the tomb. And they see the changes. Even the, the Jewish leaders note it in those first few chapters of Acts that these, these men were common fishermen that really didn't have any courage at all. And now look at them. They're willing to die rather than stop telling this message. What changed them? It's the same thing that changes us, except for them, it was by sight. They saw him raised. They saw him alive. And then soon they would see him ascend into heaven. And the early disciples throughout the time of the New Testament, which perhaps finishes up somewhere before the turn of the first century, before AD 100, uh, we read the stories of intense persecution, beginning with uh, the Jewish leaders in Saul of Tarsus, and then when he turns and becomes a Christian himself and a Christian leader himself, uh, they get all the more forceful and they uh, continue to, to strive to destroy it. And Nero has both Peter and Paul killed because of this story. And rather than say, you know, it's really not true. We were doing it just because we wanted power, we wanted th people to think we're cool. If you know that it's a lie, you're not gonna suffer like that, and yet they did. They did. Peter crucified upside down because he didn't wanna be killed in the manner that his Lord was killed in. According to tradition in Rome, in the AD 60s, Paul himself beheaded because as a Roman citizen, he was saved from the fate of crucifixion but still he was killed for the faith and all the others as well. John, the only apostle, as best we can tell, who dies of natural causes and yet he dies in exile because of his faith. Why? Because he had seen Jesus dead and then he saw him living after the resurrection. Um, we see this time and time again. It's a credible story. It is the story. It is the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And if it can be disproved that Jesus rose from the dead, then everything else goes with it. But they couldn't in the days after it was claimed that he had been raised. They couldn't in the years that followed as the church began and exploded onto the scene. And they can't today. Okay, the last part of Matthew. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. So we have seen the incredible story of the resurrection, and now we see this great commission being given to not just those who were watching him ascend, but to us as well, and to all who will follow the name of Christ. But he also assures us of his presence. Resurrection, commission, presence. What is it that Jesus tells us to do? He tells us to go. Some have said that means as you go or while you're going or wherever you go or to go specifically and deliberately to do this. Doesn't matter to me. Doesn't matter to me because Jesus said that you got to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Jesus said, let your light so shine among others that they'll be able to see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. Jesus himself said, deny yourself, take up that cross, follow me, let your good deeds be seen by others, become a servant just as I have come to serve rather than to be served. Realize in Matthew 10 that things may be very difficult for you on this road, just as they have been difficult for me. At the Last Supper, as he shared with his disciples, John especially tells us over and over, he told them, look, the world is going to treat you horribly. It's treated me that way. It's not going to be any better for you. But you just keep doing what you're doing. You keep trusting in me. You keep having that obedient faith. You keep loving me enough to keep my commands and to tell this story, and it'll be okay. You may suffer. You may even be killed, but you'll be okay. Why? Because I will be with you. I'll be with you, and that's what he says here as well. What does he tell us to do when we go or as we go? To make disciples. That's the Great Commission. It's to make disciples, and that begins with telling the story the story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And then as people come to believe in it and they ask that question that's asked several times in the book of Acts, what do we do? Jesus tells us, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the conversion experience. They take that faith and they accept that story, that gospel, and they, it changes their life. That's repentance. And they make that statement of confession and and they're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Peter says in Acts chapter 2 to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Either way, it doesn't matter. It's the same. It's the same. It's by the authority of the one true and living God. Jesus tells us to do that. To, he, the Great Commission is not to make converts. As important as that is, the Great Commission is to make disciples followers, learners, people who will be lifelong students of Jesus Christ. Go and make disciples of all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't end there, as Matthew says, records Jesus saying, and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And so the message that's found in this book the message that Jesus gave to his first disciples is translated on to the next disciples and the next disciples and the next disciples and to us and to those that we will disciple, to those that we will share this great message with. And we share the message of Paul and his conversion. We share the message of Peter and his story. We share the wonderful message of Lydia, perhaps the very first Christian convert in Europe. 
We share all of those stories, but we also share our story. Here's what happened to me. Here's how I became a Christian. Here's how my mother revealed faith enough to take me to a local church of Christ in San Antonio when I was just a boy of the age of 13 or so. And to go to that preacher, Ronnie Clayton, that wonderful man of God, Ronnie and Karen, still very near and dear to our hearts, and to study in that night to be baptized along with my sister and my father and my mother to be restored to following the Lord and being a faithful disciple. And that night being asked, hey, why don't you come to a devotional with us? And we did and asked, hey, why, we're going on a mission trip this summer to Mexico. Why don't you come with us? Okay, <laughs> we did all of that. We did all of that. And as we grew, we learned. Peter says to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ at the end of 2 Peter chapter 3. And that's what we're to do. That's what being a disciple means. It doesn't mean being baptized and then stopping and ending there. As important as that is, it means continuing to be a learner, a disciple. And so we go out and we share this story and message with others, praying and hoping that they will be convinced enough to follow and serve the Lord that we have chosen to follow and serve. And as we do that, we help each other. That's what the church does. That's why there is the church. That's really why there is the New Testament. Because why is it written? Well, it's written to to the church. Even Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are documents of the church. They're written long after these events happened, at least 20 or so years and, and more. And they're written to help us, to encourage us, to remind us, this is how you are to live. This is what a worthy life looks like. This is what it means to be a living sacrifice, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12. This is what it means to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. To be a disciple. Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And if that's where it ended, that would be okay. We would have our marching orders, but that's not where Matthew's gospel ends. It ends with this statement and promise at the end of verse 20, and surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Even if I don't feel you close to me, Jesus, I'll be there. Even if it seems like you're nowhere to be found, I'll be there. Even if I don't understand why you're not acting in a world that needs you so desperately to act, I'm there. I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. You have to trust me, and that's faith. It's biblical faith. As our, my, felt my, my wonderful mentor and elder of that great Lackland Terrace Church of Christ in San Antonio years ago, a, a principal at one of the local public high schools in San Antonio, Daryl Flint, used to say, biblical faith is not just believing that something is so, it is acting like you believe it's so. And the first step is to be baptized ourselves, and the second step is to continue to be a disciple, a student, a learner, uh, not doing things perfectly, but doing things faithfully. This is the gospel of Matthew that speaks about the king and his kingdom with so many wonderful, great verses that we have seen. Um, 
as he recounts in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds or surpasses that of the religious leaders, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And that great Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Um, that great word of warning in chapter 10 that says, look, don't come to me if you think you just want to make your life better in this world because it's, it may get worse because of your faith, not better. But I'll be with you. I'll be with you always. That call to be the salt of the earth in Matthew 5 and the light of the world, to let our light so shine so that others will see our good deeds and praise our Heavenly Father. The words that he told us in Matthew 16 to deny ourselves and take up our cross, Luke says daily in Luke 9, and follow him. That's what it takes to be his disciple, to be a servant as he told uh, James and John and all the others in Matthew chapter 20. The Son of Man came to be to serve, not to be served, and I'm calling on you to do that as well. The world says the greatest among you are the ones who have the servants. But I'm telling you that the greatest among you are the ones who serve. And then in that great passage in Matthew 6, verse 33, which could be a theme verse of the Gospel of Matthew, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and all the things that you need all the things that you're anxious about, they'll be given to you as well. If you seek first his kingdom, he still calls us to do that exact thing today. It's not gonna be easy. It may even at times not be what we want, but that's what it means to deny yourself and to take up your cross and to follow after Jesus. We're just doing what he did as his disciples. And then these last words in Matthew 28, Verses 18 through 20, go, go into all the world and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. This summer, we're going to get to see the next chapter. Luke writes volume one in the Gospel of Luke, but then he writes volume two in the book of Acts. And we're going to get to start in that story in uh, this next week on Tuesday and Thursdays at 4 p.m. I hope you'll be a part of that study as well. Let's bow for just a moment in prayer. Father, we praise you for this story of Jesus Christ, for the gospel, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. We're thankful, Father, for the word and the teaching that he gave us. And we're thankful, Father, for the ones who have shared this story, even at the cost of their own lives, that they saw him, that this is the truth, that this happened, and that it will happen again, that he will come, and that he will not come, Father, uh, to save the world as he did this first time, but that he will come to bring the saved to be with him for eternity. Father, we look forward to that day. We pray that it would come quickly and come soon. And in the meantime, Father, we pray that you would find us faithful disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I hope to see you Tuesday as we discuss Acts chapter one, the Acts of the Holy Spirit in the church the church that is beginning with a bang. I'll see you then.